The Incomparable. Number 282. January 2016. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. I am joined by a fine panel of people. This week, we're going to talk about the uh, recently concluded Series 9 of Doctor Who from the BBC. You know, uh, Doctor Who, one of my favorites. And so we talk about it a lot. We don't uh, do the Flashcast on this podcast feed anymore because we do them over at the TV podcast feed, part of the great Incomparable Network that posts uh, like two podcasts a day, so many podcasts that you can't even listen to them all. Uh, but anyway, if you'd like, if you like our uh, episode by episode, you can check that out. But we'd like to check in at the end of a Doctor Who season and do an episode on the Incomparable about the season as a whole. And I've got a great panel uh, to join me to talk about that. Glenn Fleischman, you, you know, you may remember him from the four episodes he was on last year, but he's been in both of the episodes so far this year. He's here. Hi, Glenn. <laughs> By my math, that means I'll be in 100% of the episodes for 2016. Yeah, you're on pace for 52 episodes this year, so keep it up. Also on pace for 52 episodes this year is David Lohr. Hello. Hello, stranger. You're ahead of Dan Morin already. (laughs) Well, not hard. No. Ooh. <laughs> Burn. Okay, just a little competitive. The trash now, talk. Now, and, yeah. and, and trying to uh, repeat, raise her, raise her uh, standing back to what it was in 2014, Erica Ensign, also two for two. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I, I need to get my numbers back up. Last year was embarrassing. I'm, I'm happy to, to have you here to talk Doctor Who. This is one of those things where I now have so many friends who are Doctor Who podcasters as well, which is great. <laughs> also here, our control group, he's never seen Doctor Who before. Wait a second, that's Babylon 5. <laughs> it is uh, Stephen Schapansky from Radio Free Scaro. Hello. Hi there. I was actually hoping to get some words in about Star Wars if you've done a podcast <laughs> about that yet. So Series 9 starts with a uh, two-part episode, a lot, a lot of two-part or paired episodes this season. Uh, the Stephen Moffat written Magician's Apprentice and Witches Familiar in which the Doctor uh, meets Davros as a child, as an, uh, as an old shriveled monster man, <laughs> and uh, and Missy is there, and there's a lot of sort of Clara Missy interaction on Earth where the Doctor isn't, and then also on Scarrow where they are where they end up. Um, so this this was our our kickoff, and and um, I, I'm interested what everybody thought of this. Um, I. You know, as with all of these, I I did the episodes on the on the TV podcast about them. Um, but it's different to think about it sort of after a while versus after li- like literally having seen it an hour before. Um, the thing that strikes me, knowing the whole season arc, is I'm surprised that this is the only time we saw Missy this yeah. season. But it, this is yeah. not kicking off, other than the mention of the confession dial. The opening two parter is not about the series wide story arc. It, you know, Davro, Davros doesn't come back. The Daleks don't really come back. Missy doesn't come back. It's just a two parter about Davros and the Daleks and Missy and the Doctor all co- and and Clara all kind of churned up together, which is kind of nice. I kind of you know I think and but of yeah. course it didn't it didn't stop nerds from you know, extrapolating everything from that opening two-party because they've come to expect it over the years to say, oh, whatever is laid down in episode one, it's going to come back in episode 12. There was even, a, uh, I think, when um, in dealing with Clara's, because, you know, Clara was leaving at the end of the series, everybody knew that. And I think a whole bunch of people were sort of thinking, oh, perhaps there's something to do with the Dalek 
in this story mm. and perhaps she's actually dead in the Dalek and we'll find out at the end of the series that she's actually been dead the whole series and but no nothing no. nothing of that came to pass he says to her I'm sorry I'm so sorry and I was like ooh that's a little foreshadowing and then there's no payoff I love the yeah. the, the callback though about when we've seen Jenna Coleman inside the Dalek before right so that was <laughs> yes. that, that was kind of nice interesting use of Davros here I think Julian Bleach did a really good job as Davros yeah. I'm not entirely sure I buy the whole uh Baha, but I've double crossed you. Baha, but I've double crossed you kind of thing that happens at <laughs> yeah. the end. But there are a lot of really great kind of jousting moments between them that were interesting and the parallel between those two and then and then Missy kind of using Clara as her anti companion. I thought that was all kind of very very clever, even while the plot was kind of creaking along. Yeah, I liked I liked it very much. The uh, I, I I was okay with the Davros, you know, you know the the chess game, the one upping each other, even at the end, because it seems sort of fitting for their, uh, given what they have gone through those two characters over the last many many years. And um and as far as it, I was glad that that this didn't come back, that we didn't get more Daleks mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. Davros at the end. Um, we I did think, that already, didn't we? Yeah, and huh. Lynn Lynn on on Verity, she she has like the which she refers to as like the Stephen Moffat rule. Any season that's written by Stephen Moffat, she just she refuses to really judge as a season until it's completely done and she can oh. look back. She's always withholding judgment because mm. he's always going to do something that you don't expect, probably. And and I I love the fact that this episode, like Stephen said, got all the nerds, you know, getting their conspiracy theories already, and then it was <laughs> none of nope. that. Probably the only little Davros thing that that bugged me a little bit was the idea that he's just been keeping his real eyes closed this whole time. Like, yeah. <laughs> I thought he didn't have any eyes. I just I don't know. That was that was maybe I, a little a little step too far that he was able to open his eyes and they looked so healthy and young in there. I, I did like that he double crossed himself too. I think we talked about it maybe. maybe offline uh, or online rather but not on a podcast that that uh, he was saying one thing aha I fooled you but really he had had a real emotional moment with the doctor mm. and there was you know it was presented I think it was acted beautifully I think that whole bit was I was like something's going on here but I thought maybe maybe we're getting a different kind of insight maybe somebody double crosses Davros comes from outside this scene or the, the Daleks come in and, and then he's like haha I fooled you into grabbing the cable but I'm like nah you revealed a little too much of yourself I love those moments when they transcend the script, they transcend the acting, and they become that you know mythology uh, that that has a it's root, you know it's rooted in emotion, but it's also like that was a great like deeply m- many layered scene uh, in the middle of a good episode too. Yeah, I, I I like to think that Davros, I think you said it well. Um, some some more he gave some more information out than perhaps he intended <laughs> to, and I I, I want to think that I want to think that we've gotten some insight and this wasn't all just kind of a sham. Uh, as part of his plot, but that we got a little bit of an insight into a character like that. Just like showing him as a child, you know, Davros had to come from somewhere and be somebody before he became a monster. And so to see that is interesting. I loved, uh, you know, I I enjoyed listening to this. uh, We talked about it on the opening uh, TV podcast, but we also talked about it, or I heard, I heard people talking about it on Radio Free Scarrow and on, on Verity, the idea that this callback to Genesis of the Daleks and the audacity of Stephen Moffat to, name check and and like reference in so many ways this uh, hallowed piece of doctor who classic doctor who canon that that's ground that i mean you gotta you gotta you gotta have guts to uh to 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 go there 
And he he went there. And and that moment that I saw the fog kind of blowing across the battlefield, I was like, oh, geez, it's Genesis of the Daleks. And that's exactly what it was. So full credit to him for having that, the guts to do that. Wow. I also like the political timing that we have, you know, would you kill baby Davros? And then then it's could you kill baby Hitler was what? Like days later? Is it two days later? Please watch Doctor Who and you will get all the answers that you need. (laughs) Show compassion to baby Hitler. Yeah. And I, I mean, I liked that none of the plot machinations really came back later or any of the things except for the confession dial, but it, it fits thematically with things that are going on through the rest of the season, which I really liked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love the ch- scene stealing uh, bits by Missy because she's so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, just uh, Michelle Gomez, fantastic. But the, the, I'm thinking of making you, it's just nonchalantly has Jenna str- or as, or as a Clara strung up. And then when she says something really clever, she's like, all right, maybe you're not sandwiching. <laughs> just, I just love her absolute amorality. And la- it's just, it's so rare to see a character that, that unmotivated by anything particular except the desire to cause chaos and act out of their own will. It was great. Yeah, she refers to Clara, too, as, you know, the puppy in the relationship, which is which is actually something that I think I have done uh, before on podcasts, just talking about the doctor and how he looks at humans, whether he wants to admit it or not, that, you know, that he doesn't see humans as, as quite on the same level as him, much as he tries. And uh, Missy just, of course, is the kind of person who will flat out state that. Right. Although I'm not, I'm never convinced whether that's he sees humans that way or he sees everybody that way. Right. Right. Does he think his own kind is that way too? I so as much I agree. I I like the idea that we don't have this big story in the beginning that comes around in the end. I think that that was good. I didn't need to see that climactic Davros Daleks whatever at the end of the season. That said, I am actually a little bit disappointed that we didn't get more Michelle Gomez because she's great. Mm -hmm. She's really great. But they're clearly paving the way for future episodes, especially, you know, just her making a deal with the Daleks. And we Mm. never see actually what happens and what the terms are and how they'll come back in the next series. And you know what's going to happen next series or in the series after that. Sure. Sure. And I mean, she did get two episodes. That's true. But she's so great. I mean, I'm not sure I felt give me more Missy right away at the end of uh, series eight. But mm-hmm. but at yeah. the end of this two-parter, I was like, <laughs> I I don't really want to wait a whole series to get more of Michelle Gomez as Missy because she was a she was a lot of fun. Just that dear my dearest enemy business. It's just oh. like how much she loves the Doctor. Yeah, well, and that you know I think that was good with the um with the uh, Saxon uh, master also on Blank and his name the wonderful actor John Sim. Thank you, John Simmons. It was wonderful and just, you know, chewed. I mean, the screen was bleeding when it was done because it was just so chewed up. <laughs> but just you got that sense that they were in it together. It was the two yeah. of them. They were boys together. They'd grown up together. They had this affection um, that was so terrible in their difference in how they approached the universe. It would literally tear the universe apart. And I thought the Missy part was like a, li- a slightly more gentle version of that. And she's like, who would, you know, well, who else would he trust for Christ's right. sake, you know? Yeah. But, but also a little imbalanced, a little stuff. I don't want to say stalkery, but a little imbalanced where the doctor is, has a little bit more healthy connection to reality than, than the master does. And yes. so, and, but I, I like this because this is as with any James Bond villain, um, you know, after a while, it sh- the, the conflict should be resolved. And the, why is it not resolved? And the answer is, you know, in reality is because we want to keep seeing them in conflict. But in the, in the show, I, I think this is a very clever way of doing it, which is, you know, the, the master, Missy, they don't really want to 
kill the doctor. Mm-hmm. They just want the doctor's attention. They want to play with the doctor. <laughs> they want to have right. fun. Traps are flirting. You know, yeah. I, and I think that's an interesting take on it that, that is, yeah, that's a little bit meta, but it's also, I think, fun to have that be their relationship yeah. and, be- and because of that you 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 trust her i mean I, I you know when it was missy and clara running around the uh the basement of the dalek city there and and like you know missy was sort of saying oh get in the dalek it's the perfect way to to sort of break in and that it's just a way of like tricking clara to get into the dalek so she can become you know her personal little killing machine <laughs> but we believed it because we we knew that missy was sort of working towards saving the doctor for some strange reason it's because of michelle gomez that that it, it's such a believable performance performance and and i mean i love her as as an agent of chaos mm-hmm. which comes up have one then yeah. and and uh, as as a coyote trickster kind of character mm-hmm. from from mythology i mean it's she's and and i i was not a fan last year i loved her in this i was gonna throw out the riddler too a little bit yes. mm-hmm. where it's yes. like uh you know does the riddler really want to kill batman a lot of times i think the riddler just likes oh he's playing with my puzzles yay right i mean it's <laughs> sort of like it's fun to play with batman and I, I get a little bit of that from missy too he's, he's the only one who answers them that's right yeah. that's right no one else will solve my yeah. puzzles robin might I like uh, plausible evil, too, as opposed to the uh, Emperor Palpatine. Like, he gets a yeah. lot of paperwork out of that whole situation, from what I can determine. <laughs> Not much else. And Missy is, is that like, is delight in what she is doing, yeah. or the master in what he is doing, uh, that goes beyond that, like, destroying the universe. It's like, nope, he's having a good time, or she's yeah. having a good time. All right, let's move on and talk about the uh, Toby Whitehouse two-part episode, Under the Lake and Before the Flood. This is the one, you may remember, with ghosts on a spooky ghost on an under, underwater base. Whoa. And then um, one of the things that I thought was a clever structural thing is that you essentially get part two before you get part one, where they're in yeah. this flooded old area, and then part two goes back in time to see how it got <laughs> flooded. I think maybe less cleverly than I had hoped it would get resolved, mm-hmm. but I still think it's structurally kind of funny to to say, what if we did a story where you see part two, and then you see part one, and then you see the resolution? Because that's what the structure is here. And so you get two kind of different feeling episodes um and it's a base under siege and a bunch of kind of classic doctor who stuff so what did everybody think of this one i i quite liked it i loved the uh the mood i loved how quickly the the setting and like the the setting up of the episode happened because when i when i you know when it was revealed that there's gonna be a two-parter with the base under seas, I just sort of expected a sort of a languishing part one, just sort of setting the mood and everything. But we knew exactly what was happening before the opening credits rolled on that first episode. And so the rest is just sort of left to atmosphere and everything. And uh, I, I loved... Um I love many things. I love the uh, I love the 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 deaf person in charge, I, um, which yes. I think started off as a, a sort of a conceit in the story, but just she she became a strong character on, in her own right. I love the the flash cards that the doctor has in order to try and appear, you know, um, human and sort of uh, <laughs> have emotional compassion for people. I quite enjoyed that, and uh, um, and yeah, it was it was uh, it was really well directed. I I think my favorite part was the very beginning of of the second part, where you know at times shows will just sort of try and disguise info dumps uh, as a as a two handed conversation, 
this info dump is Peter Capaldi talking directly to camera, talking about basically what the solution of the episode will be, yes. uh, you know, with, with no pretense whatsoever. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought it was just bold and fantastic. I loved that. Although, yeah. you know, is that a call forward to the fact that he's talking to Clara uh, in his head in the – in uh, uh, he- uh, heaven sent. I mean, because that's the mm-hmm. same sort of scenario. It can be. Well, it could be. I mean, but I think it's yeah. the, it's presented in that same light, and I'm like, it's him being clever in his head. He already knows what he's saying, but he's saying it to us, the audience, to his you know mm. companion who's not present as he speaks it. Right. I never made that connection before, but that that makes perfect sense at the time because I I don't like it when characters break the fourth wall. So at the time, I was trying to fit that part together with the very last scene when Clara is actually on the TARDIS and I wanted it to stitch together perfectly so that the doctor was actually explaining it to Clara. However, I've watched the episode, I've watched it like two, three, four times or something like that now. And the, the way that, that the camera keeps moving and the way that the doctor keeps speaking to the camera in different angles, it absolutely cannot be Clara that he's talking Mm -hmm, to because he keeps changing direction and she's nowhere to be found. Except he he asks her about Beethoven. So it's a callback, whether she understands it or not, I guess. Exactly. Left to the imagination, but I like it because it reminded me of of um, of uh, listen, which has a same kind of structure where the doctor is basically talking to the camera, or is he? But I don't know. I kind of feel like that if there's ever anybody who is going to narrate his own internal monologue aloud as he wanders around, <laughs> it's the doctor. And I I just I love the bootstrap paradox thing. Uh, I like how it's done. I like that he's got mm-hmm. the guitar that he plays Beethoven's mm-hmm. fifth on that kicks into the Doctor Who theme with the guitar going mm-hmm. in the background. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I like so the guitar nice. so much more than I thought. When they first introduced him with the guitar, I thought, what a gimmick. <sighs> and I, I really adored it as a, a unique and, and you know, lively, surprising element. It was great. Who, who knew that that, <laughs> that Peter old, that oldest actor to be cast as the Doctor in ages, Peter Capaldi, would be at his best with an electric guitar some sonic sunglasses and a hoodie. Who knew? I like. I think the uh, that whole scene also ties up with with Heaven Sent yeah. in that I think it mm-hmm. all sort of takes place in his, if you will, Sherlockian mind palace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, his, uh, so it's actually him just talking to himself. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. we are the we, again. I, I mean, Stephen Moffat leaves no stone unturned in, and I know it's turned some people off, but it leaves no stone unturned in the kind of like metatextual aspect of Doctor Who. I, when I was uh, obsessed with Doctor Who in high school. I read the uh, the schol- basically scholarly work, Doctor Who, the unfolding text, which is a fascinating thing. But it was like it really opened my mind to the idea of taking a silly TV show really seriously. And and what I love about Stephen Moffat is that he does that. He he says, why don't we do episodes about the questions we ask ourselves about why why Doctor Who does what it does? And this is a great example of that, where it's like he's talking to us. We are his internal monologue. We are his audience. He says he literally says. What am I without an audience this season? Uh, Right? And then looks at the camera. And looks at the camera. So, I mean, and, and yeah, you could say that's, oh, that's winking and it's fourth wall breaking and all that. But I don't know. I think it's more than that. I think that it's, it's this character, it's not unreasonable to understand that this character is performing for at least an imagined audience, if not a real television audience. And, 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 and throughout the season, we see that. And, and Peter Capaldi does it well. It's, 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 I find it, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, and I mean, throughout, he's done a really good job uh, as a showrunner, dwelling on on what is story, what does story mean, what is myth, you know, and and mm-hmm. just sort of 
drawing all of these different things out with with each season and with each different doctor he's written for. And and this was sort of like the next step. It's like, okay, now we're just we're going to talk. It's not just myth. It's not just fairy tale. I'm talking to you as an audience, <laughs> right? Your point about story is, is so true. You know, back in the fifth doctor, with the fifth doctor scene, you know, we're all stories in the end. And here yeah. it's 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 really playing around with the fact that the doctor literally is a story. Mm-hmm. He's just, you know, given up the pretense and now he's talking directly to us. Well, I'm Amy with Amy Pond, the same mm-hmm. that that first the Matt Smith season, season five, Stephen Moffat's yeah. first season was all about fairy tales. Right. And mm-hmm. and that the doctor was a fairy tale. And here we have something sort of uh, similar to that. I like it. I, I you know, I, I enjoy it. I think that is as modern as Doctor Who gets. And I, I get people saying that they want to they, they they'd like to see something different. You know, we are in the Stephen. Moffat era now it is closer to the end than it is to the beginning and uh, there will be a change in in leadership that leads to uh, a showrunner who does something different but I think we'll look back on this and say uh, on this era and say wow Stephen Moffat pushed a lot of boundaries and made some bold decisions to 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 question as a lifelong Doctor Who fan to question how does the show work what, what you know? Yeah. What can we do that is not that is outside the rules of the show or comments on how the show works? Mm-hmm. And and to have a talented, intelligent uh, sh- writer and showrunner do that, I think this is a very special kind of era from the show. Even though I would also probably agree that if the show was only ever this, it would be too much. But it's right. not only ever this. It's Doctor right. Who. It will be something else again, just as it was something else before. And yeah. and being himself a lifelong fan, too, and saying both, you know, how do we make it interesting? But also, how how do I tell stories in this show that's been around for 50 years that are different? That have that never been new. told in this way. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, right. And he gets right. to settle the canon, too. There's things that he's probably been thinking about for decades. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's like, yeah. OK, this is canon now. That thing that I wanted to say, it is. And that's. Great. My head cannon is now cannon. Although, yeah, pretty fun. I think one of the things, and, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, and we will get back on the episode <laughs> track here, I swear. Um, <laughs> I, I found great restraint in some ways with him. It's a little like how in in the, in the mm. Force Awakens there are a lot of uh, of uh, details that are left to the to the audience's imagination. I feel like Stephen Moffat delights in in the loose threads. Yes. And and mm-hmm. while he likes to pick up threads that he, bothered him when he was a fan, he also delights in <laughs> leaving loose threads behind for either his successors or just for the fans to drive themselves crazy about. And and I and I I love that because it would be so easy to tie everything up with a bow. And I, I do appreciate the fact that Stephen Moffat does not want to do that. He wants to leave messy bits for the audience to f- get frustrated about. I think he also wants to leave bits for, you know, the the alternate materials to fill in, so books and big finish. And I mean, he's he's he because he kind of came from that world. He his very first Doctor Who thing was actually a short story. Uh I think he's cognizant of the fact that there are other professionals out there doing Doctor great Doctor Who work in other realms. And uh, I think he likes the idea that he has given them an extra little bit of a playground. 
let's let's move on and talk about uh, the. Oh, oh wait! Uh, oh, I yeah. want to talk one last thing about episode three and four, just tiny. Sure. Which is, it, it deals with story. The fact I thought it was a very clever idea. I've seen it used before in other contexts, including uh, Snow Crash, really by Neil Stevenson. Is uh, uh, this idea of rewriting the brain's firmware and that idea that them just mm. looking at some characters on a wall and only the oh, people yeah. who saw it it rewrote their firmware so that they would have this kind of weird electromagnetic echo after they died. I was like, that was ingenious and interesting. And it, re- I didn't love that episode pair that much. I loved the look more than the the plot. There were some great bits in it, but that got me for some reason. Yeah, that was a very, a very clever bit that, that um, was not exploited too much. No. It was just sort of in there as an interesting idea that your, your brain is hacked by just the act of seeing the characters on the side of the wall inside the thing. Neurolinguistic programming or something. Spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Let me take a break to tell you about our sponsor. This episode of The Incomparable brought to you by the Zombies Run Virtual Race. Now, this is such a great idea. We all know running helps get you fit. A lot of people run. I've been uh, running on and off for the last year. Um, But it's also really boring. (laughs) And you want to stick something in your ear holes. Maybe you listen to podcasts. Maybe you listen to music. This is a virtual race that makes running fun. Whenever you're out in the world, you head out to run 5 or 10K with your headphones in, and the app immerses you in a thrilling audio story. It's specially designed to match the distance you're running. So while you're running, you'll hear zombies close on your heels. You'll need to pick up the pace. You'll hear fighter jets roaring overhead, uh, the ticking of a bomb that only you can stop, but you have to run to get there. A lot of really clever ideas. It's an immersive story that also inter- interacts with you and your running. And the zombies run virtual race. You're not just running around the track you're running to save the world uh, you get a uh, you, when you enter the virtual race you get the audio adventure series that takes you from the start of your training all the way to the end of the race you get a professional quality technical running tee a finisher's medal and a bunch of other great gear it costs 55 dollars. it's way cheaper and more fun than a gym membership uh, the first zombies run virtual race was held in october of 2015 it was completely sold out they had 25 entries and a 99.9 percent satisfaction rate so a virtual race and a great story to focus the mind while you're running there here's where you need to go visit zombiesvirtualrace.com and if you use coupon code incomparable you'll get five dollars off your entry that's zombiesvirtualrace.com and thank you to zombies run for sponsoring the incomparable uh, okay, the girl who died, the woman who lived. This is a paired set of episodes, as opposed to a two-parter proper. I think Jamie Matheson Definitely. and Stephen Moffat with the girl who died. Catherine Tregena wrote the woman who lived. Uh, we meet a shielder. She is a young, uh, a young woman in this uh, village. Um, in the girl who died, there are aliens who are. <laughs> I, I don't know, taking the testosterone of the warriors of the village, I guess. Uh, and adrenaline. They're Vikings. It's, sure. it's, They're yes, just, you know. just distilling Vikings. their bodily, their precious bodily fluids. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. And so, so we get, we get all of, uh, in the, in that part one, we get, we get all of that. The doctor also, uh, is reminded why he chose his face, which is an interesting little bit. You talk about Stephen Moffat yeah, kind of I answering really questions like while bringing up other questions. And then in the part two, um, it's, it's, uh, a, like more than a thousand years later and the shielder who is saved by the doctor at the end of the first episode and made sort of accidentally immortal, um, 
he runs into her again by accident or, or by plan. And we discover that after a thousand years, she sort of can't remember things because she's got a human sized memory. But but she um, but she and she calls herself me because I guess that's she's the only thing that matters. Does she even need a name? And we learn more about her in that. So this is the paired paired episodes that when I watched them, I thought were not going to lead to some more appearances by Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones. Not accurate. She actually is in the last two episodes, as it turns out. Um, in watching these back, I was I was uh, uh, scanning through a bunch of these episodes today before we did this. I am impressed by the fact that the mystery of this season was made perfectly clear at the end of episode five, where the doctor says... I've made her a, and he gets this look on his face and he says, she's a hybrid. And, yeah. and and from the perspective of the end of the season, you realize that's the moment where he realizes that he what he's just done is created a legendary figure in Gallifrey in history. He realize, <laughs> he totally gets it at that moment that that's what he's done. But until you've seen the whole season and gone circled back around again, you don't realize that. I never realized. So now that I think about it, so she actually, the hybrid did cause what was said, but she what didn't cause it to happen, right? Is well, that it's like crouching in the in the wreckage of Gallifrey. She's there at the end of the universe. Yeah, but she also sets in the sequence the events because the Time Lords are afraid of the hybrid. It's that circular I want to give Moffat credit for being that clever that she <laughs> No, because he is. But I mean some of the stuff I know you read in too much and there's headcanon, but she sets into motion by being there. The Gallifreyans have the prediction. Yeah. And then she uh, enacts or does the thing that gets the doctor to go into the punishment disc and then winds up with the doctor deciding maybe destroy history to recover Clara and there she is in the ruins. So it's very neat. I didn't think it's of that not, whole It's thing. actually not that neat. Um, because, why? Tell me why. No. <laughs> because because the Nemesis. other part of that the, the other part of the prophecy was that it uh, you know ruined Gallifrey um, like destroyed a, a billion hearts to heal its own and the that's the doctor that. that's, right. that's not that's, that's not true. her so it's it's still it's still very much left to headcanon which i love i like yeah, that it's a very so. open-ended loose, loose they didn't tie anything yeah. up in it we a don't know who bottle. the hybrid is ultimately but it is exactly. funny that in this moment first off she's created by the doctor's compassion and realizing who he is and what what he stands for and that's why he does this but but there is that great moment upon reflection and and it's just it's a it's a perfect thing because it is structured for people t- who have seen the whole season and are watching it again to go oh look at that where he very clearly is like she's a hybrid and you can (laughs) see it in his eyes that he he has figured out who she is or has an inkling of who she is um and that's all really interesting and then that becomes a thread in this whole season which is the doctor does a a good deed because that's who he is and he saves people and that's why he chose the face of Caecilius, who david tennant's doctor saved in pompeii um but it has ramifications because in this case he's like with captain jack harkness who is who is name checked at a later time yeah. um she now can't die and therefore is an anomaly in the universe and they also mentioned that hybrid uh, business in the uh, first dalek two-parter and that's sort right. of the that's the hybrid that that the time lords think is the legend that that, that a half dalek, dalek half time human... lord hybrid exactly yeah, yeah. So conceited right. yeah the, I, I thought it was interesting too that uh the throwaway bit that was confusing is in the in uh the woman who lived uh they make another immortal and that's it and we don't see him again well, no, because they didn't. They didn't say that he was necessarily immortal. The oh, doctor right. said it may right. have burned out the chip in order to actually bring him back. So who knows? Are right. you making that up? He said maybe. Right. <laughs> also, also, there's the fact that she's not. I mean, 
not exactly indestructible. She's no, immortal if she doesn't get harmed. Exactly. The only reason she lives so long is because she's awesome. And, and that careful. other guy didn't seem quite so awesome. So <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. he just got his head lopped off accidentally at some point. <laughs> Couldn't grow a new one, but probably His not. head is immortal, but his body is gone. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very Ouch. inconvenient. That's an X-Files That's how you get right the face there. of both. That's, that's the Christmas episode. <laughs> Any other thoughts about, I mean, about this? This It's an interesting set of... Uh, of the, the sort of paired, like these are the uh, Shielder stories about, um, about the. I mean, the first the first story is a very. It feels like a very kind of like standard Doctor Who story. Mm-hmm. There are Vikings and you know and and aliens. It's <laughs> actually my least favorite of the yeah. the whole series. Uh, I think my favorite uh, my favorite parts of this two parter were just the the heart to heart character bits between the Doctor and a Shielder slash me. Yeah, and it's when yes. they sort of you know when they bring it, brought in that weird lion and everything else that sort of went on. It kind of, it kind of, it kind of detracted from space everything. Lion, Steve, space, the sp- the space, space lion. Steven. Space What's the episode Tom Baker series with the, the navigator oh, space lion? Oh, I know. Lion. I was Warriors desperately Gate? hoping it was going to be a Thoro from Warrior's Gate, yeah, but it I was, was not. I, had that reaction. I love that. Pair. That was a, yeah. uh, whatever the episode <laughs> They're in E-Space, I love though, that. So yeah. they're, they're totally yeah. different. Space yeah. lions. Yeah. There are many know. space lions. Yeah. Lots of space lions. A credit, a credit to Maisie Williams, who I think if you actually timed out how much screen time she had in her four episodes of Doctor Who, she might have had more than the whole last season of Game of Thrones. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, she gives four distinct performances mm-hmm. of a shielder in four episodes because she's aged so many times in between. And this is a girl who turned 18 during the course of making oh, the series. Goodness. You know, like, she is a talented young actress. Yeah. I mean, it was great to watch her. Yeah, I had that I had that same moment, uh, same thought of, like, because I had a moment during this season where I thought, are they are they going to use Maisie Williams as as the next companion? I did have mm-hmm. that moment, uh, and I thought, well, no, because she's on Game of Thrones. And then I thought, how much work does she do for Game of Thrones? Really, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, she's in like fifty minutes of Game of Thrones every year. She's in mm-hmm. very little of it because that's how Game of Thrones mm-hmm. works. So, you know, she, yeah, she. I, I'm pretty sure she has more screen time in Doctor Who than in Game of Thrones this year. Oh. I want to bring up one last little thing that I like, which is the the, the idea of Jason. You mentioned that she has a human mind, so she actually does not have, you know, in eternal memory. She has a limited memory, and she has those volumes. And I mean, it's sort of a, a gag. And she's got you know a library full of volumes of her diaries. There's no way in any given period of time she could review that enough to reclaim the memory that she lost. So there is that uh, a bit there. But I think the idea of of a boring immortality. Uh, there's um. In the uh, the night of the doctor, you know he encounters uh, the the sisters on Khan and uh, Karn, and um, they say, uh, and he's like, "Oh yes, the sister. What is it? The uh, the sisters of infinite boredom. I've forgotten the, <laughs> the line. <laughs> but but he's he's contemptuous of immortality, even as he has this very long life and has now lived as long as the universe possibly <laughs> through all of his machinations. Um, but I, d- I just like that idea that, that immortality comes in different flavors. You've got the Captain Jack Harkness flavor, you've got the Shoulder flavor, the Doctor-ish flavor, you have the Ohila flavor, and so forth. And, and another thing, just watching this or thinking about it, at least again, after seeing the entire series, another little through line is the fact that uh, you have Clara's reaction to a shielder, you know, saying, you know, she's yes. the, she's great. You know, I'll fight you for it. And <laughs> in the end, Clara actually does get to have her as the companion. Like our shielder is, is Clara's companion ostensibly at the end of the entire series. So yeah. she didn't really have to fight the doctor for her. She just got her. Which, by God, I, I want to see real. I want to hear that big finish series, <laughs> like now. 
It's I I liked the because um, when everybody uh, heard that uh, Maisie Williams was in it and and that she's going to play a huge part and then as much as Peter Capaldi's been talking about Susan in interviews leading up to the series, everyone thought that um, Maisie Williams is going to play Susan in some way, shape, or form. Oh, oh, interesting. Um, oh, what fans. I love, what I yeah. love, <laughs> or the Ronnie. What I love is at the end when or both. Uh, yeah, what I love is that at the end when when Clara runs off, flees Gallifrey in a TARDIS mm. and takes with her a companion. It's Susan, who was, of course, the companion of the Doctor when he took a TARDIS fleeing Gallifrey. I just love the uh, the, the parallels in that, in that, in that the fa- you know the outlandish fan theory um, was actually sort of born true in yeah. the end. I, I I wanted to to mention something here, which is I've heard a lot of people say that Clara has a shielder as her companion here, but a shielder's lived billions of years at that <laughs> oh, point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. I feel like they're both one another's companion at that point. They both have different things to offer um, each other at that point. Neither of them is really Time Lords. They're just they're very That's interesting true. characters in their little TARDIS together. It's not <laughs> quite the parallel, but... Well, I mean, they're both they're both immortal. Yes. Uh, yes, a shielder. Oh, right. Another has, kind has, of immortality. Has, yeah. has lived longer. But, uh, but Clara is the one who has actually been taking doctor lessons yes, for that's years. True. Huh. And she's the one that knows how to pilot the TARDIS. So I, I, still, I still see it in that way. I don't know. A shielder might have taken doctor lessons at one point in her billions she of had, years of existence. Who knows? I don't know. The doctor wasn't happy with her <laughs> she's sitting there in the in the armchair waiting for someone to show up yeah. in the ruins of gallifrey reading the manuals that's what i do that that could be that could be <laughs> uh so let's talk about episode seven and eight because we've only gotten to that point what? uh the the zygons <laughs> this is interesting because it's a direct a direct follow-on from the 50th anniversary special which i was surprised by and um you know if we've got we've got unit i think i would argue that unit uh, is poorly run, has questionable <laughs> budgets. That's, that's appropriate given the history of Unit. Yeah, uh, I suppose back so. in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, they they uh, hey, let's send our leader to America by herself in order to discover <laughs> things. You know, I don't think Unit gets gets used particularly well. I'm not sure what they if they know what to do with Unit. But what, what I did like about this is we get we get some more Osgood, who's an interesting character and is made way more interesting and less oh, of yeah. a just a fan proxy in this. She she's got a real backbone since we discovered that one, that there were a pair of Osgoods, a Zygon and a human, and one of them got killed by Missy, but the other one didn't. So that's an interesting twist, and we get some uh, some really interesting stuff with with uh with clara as uh, who's doing some stuff on her own and uh and then ultimately it it, it uh, culminates in a uh scene in the black archive back where we were in the 50th where peter capaldi gives a a, a speech about uh, war and about people making easy decisions to go to war and not thinking about the consequences that is performance wise one of i think the highlights of the season even though you know you could argue that it's wrapped in an episode that that can't live up to what he does in that 10 minute span so you know what that's my that's my take on it is i think these episodes are kind of a mess but uh, there's a bunch of little bits in it that were very good and that capaldi speech is for the ages oh, it's just a fantastic yes. little bit yeah. so yes. i think one of the the big themes that overarch this whole series is the, the idea of consequences and repercussions almost every single one of these these two parters has something in there you know whether it's meeting davros as a child or you know turning me into a hybrid 
hybrid, or in this case, I love the idea that we are finally seeing the fallout of what happened with the Zygons invading. I mean, they actually got to stay. That's the kind of thing that you almost never saw, especially in Classic Who. You got it a little bit more in early New Who, but, you know, the Doctor can't just run away from everything anymore. And now we're getting to see what happens after after the fallout sort of appears and the idea that there are zygons living among us on earth you know just hiding is is super awesome well i I suppose the silurians would probably be pretty ticked off about it when they come back and find out find out that the zygons are there how many different people are frozen in ice underneath the sea locked in a time lock (laughs) it it turns out among us at this point in doctor who uh, timelines there are no actual humans left. That's They're right. all aliens in disguise. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a sci-fi novel about that. Isn't there a, a short story about everyone on Earth actually being a, a duplicated person? They, they all just if, if there's not, I'll do it. There's a classic yeah, yeah. science Ideas. fiction story about how uh, a time traveler goes back to the crucifixion of Jesus and discovers that everybody there is a time traveler. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, Jason, you and I talked about episode seven for one of the flash casts. And, and I remember saying like, you know, there are a lot of great things in this, but the payoff had better be good because there's just so many loose ends. And you know, I felt like the payoff was, was pretty good. I don't think that episode seven, uh, lived up as much, but I felt a lot of stuff was retconned into seven from eight. And, uh, I quite liked the pair much more than I thought, especially because the whole Osgood thing where it, she's not even being coy. She's like, we're both Osgood. And then the ending where there's another Osgood. Osgood and you're like, the the potential for redemption is a theme of Doctor mm. Who and most people never take it. Most aliens, he's like, look, I could save your whole people and they go, nah, and then he has to destroy them all or they destroy themselves. Well, that was David Tennant's move, right? I'm, I'm giving you this one warning. Well, yeah. I'm not going to take it. Okay, well, then you're all dead. Yeah, exa- yeah. I'm just, <laughs> you know, destroy everybody because that's what I do sometimes. And actually, the generalization, so, I mean, people, uh, so like Star Wars fans like to make uh, gentle fun, I suppose, of the Star Wars' proclivity to have like every planet has its own one single ecosystem, whereas of course we we live on a planet that has hundreds of different ecosystems, you know, different climates and things. But no, 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 no. Other planets, it's either just ice or just desert or just trees. Um, but you could argue that Doctor Who and sci-fi in general does a very bad job in terms of taking an alien race and 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 being so reductive about them and saying, well, they are evil or they are they are mm-hmm. uh, you know this is what the aliens do. And and one of the 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 things that I think maybe is even a little underappreciated about the the Zygon two-parter is the Zygons, this classic Doctor Who enemy from the Loch Ness Monster back in the 70s. Um, these episodes are all about a split in the Zygon uh, community on Earth, essentially. This immigrant Zygon community. And there are radicalized Zygons who think that it's re- only right that they not be hi- hiding. And then there are the ones who just want to live their lives. And of course, the parallel is probably to something like Syria... Uh, where there is a refugee crisis and there are people who just want to live their lives. And yes, there are also radicalized terrorists among them. And this the challenge of not generalizing an entire group to be one thing. And I liked that about this episode. I really like that, that the Zygons are not a monolith. They don't, this race doesn't believe one thing. Mm-hmm. That they have a schism, they're individuals, they take different sides of an issue. We meet Zygons who just want to stay looking like humans and living their lives because they're basically refugees. And, and the doctor refers to them as people all yeah. the time, all yes. the way through, or children. Yeah. Yes. 
I also like the the fact that they actually claim the redemption was important because that ending is so powerful because uh, – what's her? Bonnie, the fact that she uh, – <laughs> when she figures it out, oh, oh, when she says both boxes are empty and you're just like the buttons don't do anything and then she achieves oh. that moment. It's like a Satori moment. You're like, ah, it's yes. like that Zen thing of now that person has achieved a new level of enlightenment and she's allowed to demonstrate it yeah. in that final scene where they're now two Osgoods again. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. What I what I loved about, um, about Capaldi's speech there is that I think, you know, Matt Smith, I think, made a good speech in one early episode and the writers, I think, henceforth sort of always wrote big giant speeches for him because they realized he, you know, he was good at them. And then it just sort of became a thing to, to fill time. And it, I, I got tired of him, to be honest. The, the Rings of Akatan, there's about four oh. speeches too many. But this, but this one, Capaldi's actually speaking to someone. And it, it's literally like 10 minutes of just him. But because he's talking to someone specifically, it just feels like, you know, you're, you're locked in. And I remember... You know, I I have I hold this two parter in high esteem because it's when Eric and I went to the UK for the first time and, and watched it in the UK and and part two especially we watched it you know with a family around the TV as as all British families have have done for generations now and to watch Doctor Who on a Saturday night and then have this episode be the one that we get to watch I thought oh boy this is just lucked out it was it was brilliant I loved you, you- it. Watched it in the original Klingon as it was intended to be seen. Yes, in PAL. I actually watched it in PAL. <laughs> Twenty five frames. You get that. You get those uh, those extra frames. The nuance yeah. is very different. Yeah, it is. All right. Anything more about this? Uh, this about the mini Zygons, or should we let Zygons be uh, anyway? Oh. <laughs> episode nine. For some reason, there was no episode nine. I don't understand. Nope. There's just a big blank Not spot sure. in the season, and then no, no, no. Oh, so. Wait. <laughs> All right, so Sleep No More is next. This is, we we're now entering our non-two-parter little pair here. Um, Sleep No More by Mark G- Gatiss. Uh, controversial Mark Gatiss, good buddy of Stephen Moffat. They do Sherlock together, so it's <laughs> unlikely that he's going to be kicked out of writing for Doctor Who. He's been writing since season one. Um, but people, oh, there are a lot of people who are loud and don't like his episodes. I liked sort of half of his episodes, maybe, and not like the other half. Sleep No More, uh, this is the story about the Sandmen who come to life on that space station around Neptune, and uh, it's all the found footage, and there's no opening credits, and it's very unlike a Doctor Who episode in that sense. Um, I, You know, I did... Uh, I did this episode with uh, Liz Miles on the TV podcast, and it was funny because I think both of us liked some aspects of it and not others. And it was sort of like we started the episode and it was like, oh, that was kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of fun. Let's spend 50 minutes detailing all the things that were wrong with it. <laughs> and I feel like in hindsight, that's about right. Because style-wise, I really like the style of this episode. I think yeah. it's yes. claustrophobic yeah. and dark and weird. Mm-hmm. And and yet there are things in it that it's just like, no, no, mm-hmm. what are you doing? The The whole, well, we sort of slept and the sleep stays in your eyes if you don't sleep and then it becomes alien sandmen that was just like no that doesn't make any sense what are you doing the entire (laughs) shape of it and nothing in it it was like everything that's the mise-en-scene and the the uh you know i even like the 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 weird hologram was just so everything was was dark and creepy and weird and had a weird ending and all of that i liked and yet some of the details i'm like no 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 I, it feels like, I mean, uh, Mark Gatiss had the idea for 
for some reason monsters being made out of the, the eye snot uh, that you scrape out of your eye in the morning <laughs> for years but he but he couldn't get the clearance oh. for the song for Mr. Sandman so this idea just sort of sat percolating for that long and then he finally got the clearance and by that time Doctor Who had moved on, so it's it, a very Russell T. Davis kind of idea, right? Oh, it just feels and and you know I thought well at least episode ten is going to be you know a single story too, so it won't feel that. But then it, episode ten was essentially part one of a three parter to, yeah. to end the season, yeah. which just led this one to just feel so out of place. Just like last year, Robot of Sherwood felt just nothing like a Peter Capaldi episode, stuck in you know early early on in his first season, and this would just sort of like it just. I don't know. It's just like they say, okay, Mark, you get to make your episode, and we'll make it, and we'll put it on the fridge right there when you're done, yep. and everyone can be happy. And, <laughs> and that's just what it felt like. And you're right. I liked, I liked the atmosphere. So like mean the, and so true. <laughs> I know. I liked the direction, but I just thought, oh, man, yeah, I just don't. Well, because I, yeah. I love some of my favorite, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite David Tennant episodes is the is the the impossible planet satan pit and it's for similar yes. reasons which is it's dark and weird and spooky and creepy and like the atmosphere i just love the atmosphere of those episodes and gabriel wolf's voice you will die and i will live right i love that and sleep no more has that and it like works on that level and uh yeah, that's it. <laughs> I think it want, it's almost like Gatus wants to wants to have his own little blink moment. You know, don't blink, don't ever blink. And they show shots of you know various statues around the world. And they're gonna get you if you if you keep looking at them. And that speech at the end, you know, ooh, you've got something in the corner of you. I never thought. No, I don't. Come on, <laughs> I do not have a monster forming in the corner of my eye. You know, uh, it was. Um, we went. Uh, it was a crazy November because uh, we went to Long Island Doctor Who uh, convention where we watched this episode live uh, on 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 the Saturday night. They, they played it to the whole auditorium, and then two weeks later, we were at Chicago Tardis where they played Heaven Sent. And the the immediate reaction, both during and after the episodes, could not have been more different. Yeah. We, 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 a Radio Free Scar had to do a live review of Sleep No More. Oh man! Oh no! Right after and like. Literally, I'd say about 70% of the people just sort of like, you know, walked out as if they had just seen their football team lose a game. <laughs> just like, oh, walk that, back. Just, that is okay. the problem with the, with the flash casts mm. and also just like with Radio Free Scarrow and Verity being committed to reviewing every episode. You had that moment of like, well, what do we say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you, yeah. what do you, I, again, I don't think Sleep No More is a complete failure because no, no. of, no, because no. saying the style is good. I mean, the style is not, not part of the episode. That is part of the, the episode. And the style is great. It's just, you know, again, when you get into the analysis of it, Oh, you know, that's when it falls apart. It's actually like, it's better to be viewed and being like, ah, but once you're, or if you're in a crowd of fans, right, you start thinking about it and it's just, it does not withstand scrutiny. I just was, mm-hmm. I feel like it, it felt like an early draft, not a complete thing. Like they hadn't gone back yeah. and tightened it up and yeah. made it all consistent, which they did so well. I mean, you know, we'll talk about this at the end, but this season was a phenomenal season. And uh, and this episode was not, so it stood out more. Sometimes I wonder about the politics of, but like interpersonal relationships of, uh, you know, your Stephen Moffat. Like so Russell Russell Davis rewrote almost everybody, I think, except Stephen Moffat. And Stephen Moffat apparently doesn't really do that. And 
sometimes I wonder that you get these scripts that could probably be made better if they if and, and whether it's overwork or it's just deference, you get uh you get the scripts just go through with mm-hmm. with with perhaps I don't know the inside story here, but it would not surprise me if Mark Gatiss' story got a really light touch on it. Um a little bit like Kill the Moon the previous season where I felt <laughs> like it's interesting, but it could probably there's some very simple things that would have probably made it a stronger story, but they didn't happen. Maybe that's out of out of deference to Peter Harness. I don't I don't know. But uh yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I think it's a I think this episode is kind of a mess, even though I like a lot of things yeah. about it. The other, the thing that I liked the most about it was the the representation in it. I liked the casting, and this has nothing to do with Mark Gatiss, uh, unless right. he wrote the characters as uh, most of those characters as female, which maybe he did. Uh, but I love the idea that there's an Asian woman who's in charge, oh, yeah. and we have our first openly trans actor uh, playing the, the the grunt, which some people did have trouble with, but uh, they did not know that she was trans at the time that they cast her in that role. So I don't have a problem with it at all. My trouble was the casual sexual harassment that the, that person was engaged in against the other crew member, but that's another thing. That's not related to their gender. <laughs> well, no, see, I loved that. That was my favorite part of the whole story mm. because it was completely taking that that tired old trope where there's, you know, the guy in that position and flipping it on its head. I think that, mm. that sometimes those problematic things to me are less problematic because they are, you know, we need to break them down before we can get rid of them altogether. So I like turning things, mm. turning things around. And, and I don't know that it was intentional in the script, but probably in, in the overall planning for the season, there is a thread of strong women through the whole season, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Yeah. I think I think that has to be intentional yes, because yes. Stephen Moffat, oh, has, yes. you mm-hmm. know, Stephen Moffat may not be on Twitter anymore, but he still pays attention to to sort of you know what fandom as a whole is is saying. And I think that I think that he definitely sort of listened to the you know the feminist backlash against some of the yeah. stuff that people had seen and really worked on that with with the casting. And gosh, look at the end of the season as we oh, get there, right? Yeah, yeah it's uh, also shout out to Neptune. Neptune doesn't get a lot of love in sci fi. <laughs> Here it is, <laughs> Neptune. Yay! We're on Neptune. Uh, okay, that brings us to um, the. I had an angry person who was upset that I referred to Heaven Sent as part one of the two part season finale. And they're like, it's a three part season finale, and that's part. Mm. It's like, well, I don't know. Utopia sort of leads into the finale, and Face the Raven sort of leads into the two part finale. Yeah. It's not yeah. quite the same. But anyway, Face the Raven, it seems like it's a standalone episode. It rapidly becomes something very different. Uh, this is the episode now. I'm, I'm interested to see where Erica's emotional progression is now because I've been listening to podcasts in which she is, she is, because uh, I'm a little behind on my Verity listing. She's very uh, emotionally compromised, let's say, to pull in some Star mm-hmm. Trek references uh, about uh, the, the death of Clara, which happens in Face the Raven. And it does happen in Face the Raven. Clara dies in Face the Raven. We may find out more about her death in uh, in Hellbent, which we do. But uh, spoilers. But uh, well, we're all spoilers here. <laughs> um, but Face the Raven. So this is um, there's a street Riggsy we find from from the delightful flatline from last year. Uh, Riggsy calls. He's got a tattoo that is counting down, which is a nice again a nice little creepy idea that's thrown in there. There's a little street that was obviously available from. The set of Harry Potter, maybe I don't even know. <laughs> it's where, like an alley where aliens yeah, live. It was, it was. And there's a bird, and there's a chronolock, and and uh, a shielder is there, or me is there. 
Um, and in the end, Clara is being very, very clever in a, in a plot line that I, I have to honestly say is exactly where I thought the Doctor and Rose were going in season two. Hmm. Uh, and then they didn't go there. She just got accidentally sucked into a vortex to another uh, parallel universe. But here it, it is that like your danger is you'll become too much like the doctor and start to think like him. But as the doctor says, um, he's, he's uh, less, what does he say? He says something like he's less fragile than mm-hmm. she is. Well, he knows when he, I mean, you know, there's mm-hmm. that, that underlying thing that he can't die. I mean, it's both the yeah. TV plot part, but also that he knows when he dies, sort of. I mean, that gets rewritten and we get but workarounds he, around that. He can that. take more damage than she can, but she's thinking yeah, like him too. here and it, and, and it hurts her. And it, and in the end, it kills her um, in a in an episode that uh, I found very affecting. Um, I was shocked by it. I, I podcast with, uh, with Chip Sutterth right after this was over and the first five minutes of it is literally me going, Chip, what did I just see? What just happened? Because yes. I had no idea that they were going to kill Clara and I was shocked by it. And, and I felt like they did it right in that we spent time understanding the ramifications of Clara dying. It didn't, it, you know, when you kill somebody, but you're not really killing them, you do it, you, you kind of toss it off. You don't invest the time and they invested the time to the point where as a educated television viewer, you're like, Oh no, <laughs> they're, they're taking, they're taking this seriously. This must be real. They were playing that game, which I appreciated while it, while it, you know, it shocked me and it upset me. Um, the problem I had with this episode, and I'm interested in what all you think, the problem I had with this episode is I felt like the 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 read the fine print trick that kills Clara was not really set up. I felt like it was kind of a cheat that the audience was being cheated in order to not outthink Clara about this. And that bothered me. That it's like, no, 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 we didn't say that you couldn't transfer it and still not die. <laughs> um, and it felt kind of like a ripoff to me. It didn't change how affected I was by the ending, but I did feel a little bit like they were trying to pull a fast one on me in the middle. Yes. And yes. Yeah. Yep. That's, yeah. Like read the fine print of your death contract, you know. Yeah. The, the 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 again the bits and pieces of it are very effective, but yeah, the the key to that plot, the key to that twist, just did not work. I don't for think me. they sold it enough. I, like no, it, it, they no. didn't. They didn't they underscore spent, they enough. Spent so much time on her and trying to understand that, and not enough time on trying to actually explain and set that up. Yeah, you know, it's sort of like it just all of a sudden, oh. Oh, 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 you I got it wrong. Die. Damn this, it. This peeved me at the end of the episode, so I didn't get that uh, the full weight of her dying. I was sort of annoyed at that. <laughs> but I kind of got it retconned by episodes uh, by 12. <laughs> Helped me enjoy it better. Well, but the other thing go. was the part that's got me, we'll, we'll get to 12, but I actually cry every time. And I've watched Telbent uh, only twice when she gets pissed off at him. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? For spending all the time in the, in the uh, confession dial, that got me... You know, I was dead and gone. And you're just like, oh, gee, that just hit me in the heart uh, in a way that this episode didn't, unfortunately. I'll have to watch it again now that I'm not as peeved about that plot point. Erica, how are you feeling now? <laughs> you know, if it was any other character other than Clara who died this way, I would have punched the air and been thrilled because ah. I I often I often complain about the fact that 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 characters on Doctor Who like, you know, it's such a risky proposition to travel with the Doctor. I feel like a lot more characters ought to die and and I like it when a TV show is bold enough to just kill somebody off in a not big, not schmaltzy sort of a way. Like, this is just boom, she died. However, the fact that it is Clara, my possibly favorite companion ever, who I 
apparently developed more of an emotional attachment to than I even thought. Uh, I I had kind of had my hopes up that this would be the first new series companion who got to basically leave for an exciting and good reason um, under her own agency. We've sort of written us into a corner at this point. Nobody can possibly want to leave the doctor because who would want to leave that kind of a life? And and that bugs me. I like the idea that, that characters could just go. And that's one of the things I think was better in the old series, even though sometimes it was really stupid. Uh, but here we, we have... Sort of a, a great ending, except that I wanted her to go on to be awesome. And keep in mind, this is before Hell Hellbent has come along. Yeah. So I, I I knew that there was a good possibility that they were going to kill off Clara or make her leave before the series was over. So about halfway through this episode, I could suddenly see where it was going, and it became the most awful experience of watching Doctor Who I think I've ever had. I was just tense and I knew where it was heading and yep, that's where it ended up and I was just I was just shaking with rage. I was so oh. upset. But <clears throat> I I always get mad at other people when they write a Doctor Who plot in their head and it doesn't come up on the screen and they, they get upset with the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And here, you know, here I have sort of un- unwittingly done that. So I'm not I'm not actually mad at Stephen Moffat for killing off killing off Clara. I feel like it was a, a wise decision from a storytelling standpoint. But emotionally, I just I wasn't ready for it. I, I don't know that I will be ready to watch Face the Raven again anytime soon. Maybe not ever. I still haven't listened. I listened to a whole bunch of Doctor Who podcasts and I have not listened to a single one about Face the Raven, including Verity. I, I absconded from that episode. Like I was just like, nope, I'm not going to be on this. I can't talk about it. So I, I haven't listened to anybody talk about it. Sorry, I didn't listen to you and Chip, Jason. And We're Steven, great. I didn't We're listen awesome. To Radio it's, awesome. Awesome. it's awesome. It's fun. It's just <laughs> yeah. a little. What did I just say? No, it's it's. it's like, I love it. It it was such a. <laughs> so, I, I went on. This is the most unspoiled I've been on a Doctor Who season ever. And I, I, I love that about it. Um, but I was shocked when I got to this moment. I, although, uh, so again, some of this, as Glenn said, is the nuance that comes in in episode 12 where we get to see Clara again. Um, but I, on one level, it's like everybody dies, right? And, and, and Clara at the end of, of Hellbent says to a shielder, essentially, stop worrying about it. All of us have an ending. Um, I know when mine is, but I don't need to go there yet. Right. I mean, that, that is, I think that's kind of beautiful in, in a way to, to have her, her worldview be that, but, um, but yeah, it is, I just, I would have felt better about it if I hadn't felt like the script didn't cheat a little bit in order to, I felt like the script cheated to misdirect us, but it wasn't playing fair. And so when we got there, I felt like I got cheated instead of, not realizing with it wasn't just that I didn't realize what the rules were along with Clara because then Clara's smart enough to as a character to not make that mistake um I don't know I just felt like the execution wasn't there where where I wanted to feel like it was a fair you know fair cop essentially where you're like yep you got me right mm-hmm. and I didn't feel that at the end of mm-hmm. Face the Raven that's what I wanted is for Clara to be like oh yeah all right the reason I think it's uh, it bothers us too is that, uh, and I'm speaking for everyone here, and you go, oh no, shut me down, is that uh, the episode could have been devised slightly differently and we would have been satisfied. It didn't have to have a broken mechanism uh, because it was very clever before and after, and it set up at the end the key, the, the key being sucked in, his wrist, the teleport, like all of the, the ways to suck him into a mystery were great, but they could have done 
uh, Clara misjudging something differently, like being too taking more risk and knowing it and thinking she could have gotten out of it. And they didn't give her that uh, ability. They made her do something where she didn't know. It's like the, the Agatha Christie. Yes, you can solve this mystery, including things that you never knew. <laughs> That's how you solve this mystery. Uh. Yeah, uh, it will. Uh, somebody in the uh, in the chat room, MTPA, just talked about. Uh, can't you just have the companions choose to leave? I think that's one of the challenges with the modern series is by spending more time yeah. with companions and making them seem like more reasonable characters. Um, you do often go down a path where the idea is, "This is such a wonderful life. Why would I ever give it up?" And so. With the exception of Martha, they have Martha, who who left because the doctor was a complete jerk to her. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly right. It's not an ideal departure, but at least it was different. But the rest of them, there has been something horrible that has happened because that's the only way you'd ever leave the doctor. And I get it from the sense of amping up, like, oh, it's the time of my life. Why would I ever leave? I think of Sarah Jane saying, you know, just just go, <laughs> you know, go with him. <laughs> this is a special part of your life, and at some point, it's going to end. But I do think that it's difficult because, um, you know, you portray this as this amazing magical thing, which it is, but, you know, you're not going to have them. The None of the actors stay on this show longer than three years, right? So they have to leave at some point and you end up having to create these, you know, difficult circumstances for them to depart because you've portrayed them as somebody you would never willingly choose to leave. Uh, the problem is that Clara actually got to that point last season. Where right. it made sense for her to quit, and she didn't. So yeah. they got there, and then they blew past it. Yeah, it made sense for Amy and Rory too, because they just yeah. sort of left at the end of the God Complex, and it could have been a natural end for them too. Yeah, um, but they always seem to have to go back for one more, which I'm okay with in the form of Clara. I like the power of three, I, I, and I like the idea of Amy and Rory kind of like being part time companions, and that's fine. But you know, I would have been happy if they had said we're having another baby and uh, we're going to retire from the time travel doctor. Um, instead of it being well angels or even no yeah. baby like i, I well, yeah, to I me but... a baby is another that's just another gimmick uh, I, yeah. I i love the idea that tell that to my children erica <laughs> sorry <laughs> people do have babies and settle down it is a thing that a lot of people do it seems like sorry. a good excuse I'm to tell the doctor to pound sand <laughs> look our last baby got kind of messed up because of you so not this one but see, that's just it. It's an excuse. I like the idea that people would just leave to choose to 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 do something else that that they could still be traveling with a doctor in theory, yeah. um, but they just decide yeah. not to. And then, just because somebody has chosen not to travel with a doctor, I think I think a lot of times viewers and the the showrunners are thinking about it in that okay well if we have somebody who has chosen to leave then well you know what do, what do we do the doctor's going to want to go back and visit him well yeah but that can happen off screen so yeah, what, you exactly. don't need to create some exactly. artificial new york boundary that the doctor can't get in for some reason just, exactly just so he can't see them all right heaven sent heaven sent we're into the two-parter now uh, it's peter capaldi one man show live on stage one night only <laughs> Well, no, many, many nights. Night. <laughs> yeah. This is so. This is the doctor in his. Uh, what we've discovered is the confession dial. He is being essentially tortured and interrogated, um, and it's just him and a figure in a cloak. And at the very end, a pep talk from his uh, sort of head, Clara, um, <laughs> and uh, and I don't know what I. I you know I. I I loved it because it is just a full-on Peter Capaldi, and uh, I knew what was ha going to happen 
Actually, okay, one of the things that's very clever about this episode is I felt like I knew what was going to happen from the beginning, which was that it was a loop and he'd done it before. And yeah. we get to the point where he realizes it's a loop is, and he's done it before. And I go, ha ha, I yeah. figured it out. And now we are at the end. And then the episode goes on for another 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So that part was kind of genius where it's like, yeah, and then he's going to dig a little bit further into the wall of, of harder than diamond and extend for th- hundreds of thousands and then millions and then billions of years <laughs> in order to get to the end, uh, which was just a mind blowing kind of ending to an episode that I thought was just fantastic because it's um, it's all Peter Capaldi and he's great. And, and uh, as a gimmick episode goes, and this is kind of a gimmick episode. What if we did an episode with just the doctor in it? It's uh, I thought it was kind of fantastic. What, what did everybody else think? Well, I loved it. I didn't even try to think about the puzzle. I just enjoyed watching it in the moment. And, and I, I loved it going back to it and seeing it two and three times and four times. And I don't usually watch these four times within like three days. That's this burrowed into my brain like uh, one of those bugs in uh, Wrath of Khan, and it wouldn't let go. It just I felt like I was in a loop myself, and I watched it and was just swearing and staggered, and I watched it again and again. I think I've watched it five times, and I'm only forced to will stop me from watching it more. Uh, <laughs> and then I read the script when they posted the scripts, and the scripts have some of the, the missing backstory about why the words are on the wall. Uh, you know, Obviously, they changed that during shooting or editing. Um, some things that didn't make entire sense are actually suddenly make – they just fill in that last little gap of like a part of the puzzle was actually thought about. Uh, but I don't know if this is my favorite Doctor Who, but this is the one that most appeals to the way my brain works. And I just had that same feeling of like watching it the fifth time, I still got more out of it. I think it's an incredible expression of uh, a terrible expression. And, and this comes out in episode 12, but I'll say it here first is that I was delighted that it wasn't about romance. I was delighted that mm. this was about yes. the Doctor's integrity and his feelings for her that were um, his feeling of of his duty of care, as he puts it. But that uh, the plot line wasn't like I'm. So, I mean, the rose uh, number ten, you know, ten uh, romance was real and good, and I like that, and it had its own integrity. But this was about him being the man who does the thing that is right, which is always so hard. Everyone else walks away, everyone else runs away, and he has that moment of crisis of confidence in which he, the head Clara, comes and talks to him and tells him to get off his ass, and then he's like, okay, well, that was seven thousand years. Let's try for 12,000 and on and on. So delighted. I think this, um, well, it'll, I think in years to come, I think it'll probably be looked at probably one of, if not the best Doctor Who episode ever made. Everyone has been calling it a one-man show. I call it a five-person show, that being Peter Capaldi, Stephen Moffat, uh, Rachel Talalay, who directed it, Murray, Murray Gold, whose music I think has never been better, and Will Oswald, who edited it, including that three-and-a-half-minute montage at the very end. Yeah, uh, that was beautiful. I, I mentioned the uh, I mentioned the Chicago TARDIS screening that I watched. I mean, I had seen it I think twice that day. Like I, I was at risk as, of overseeing this episode. I managed to see it twice before they actually even showed it on the Saturday night at this convention. And I thought oh, I'll just sit in the back, check Twitter and stuff as this thing sort of happens because I'm probably going to be sick of it. And like. I think I cried two or three times during the course of that. Like at the end of that big montage, when the doctor, you know, we finally get through the whole, the wall. And says, personally, I think that's one hell of a burden. Everybody just applauded, and I said, "Oh!" And then when the you know the camera swells up and it's Gallifrey there, and it's just a huge amount of applause. I mean. I remember seeing Day of the Doctor in the theater and thinking that was a magical experience. And this almost topped that. It was just watching Mm -hmm. that episode with a a crowd who 
just equally adored it and and wasn't watching sleep no more um <laughs> just made it for a magical and, and and we've been lucky because uh on radio free cigar episode 507 i think it is or 505 i can't remember um my co-host warren um lives in vancouver where rachel talalay lives and so we actually uh, sat down with her for about an hour and a half and and talked about uh, her directing these two episodes and just hearing how it was made and and the german expressionism uh, influences <laughs> that went into this thing i mean it, it's a masterpiece i adored this this episode i i mean i was so emotionally fragile after seeing face the raven i i had I had considered just not watching Doctor Who for a while because emotionally I just didn't think I was ready for it. However, I'm on a Doctor Who podcast, so that would have been kind of difficult. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, all right, I will just suck it up and I will see where it goes and and hopefully it doesn't you know kill me again. And I think this was, for me personally, the most perfect type of episode to come after an experience like that because, you know, it's it's not really dwelling on... Clara's death in a way that feels like it's, you know, pouring salt in the wound. It is, it is, it's supposed to be about the doctor kind of dealing with Clara's death, but in this story, he never gets to because Mm -hmm. he's always just reliving the same point. He is having to deal with, you know, in front of our eyes, having to deal with the freshness of her death over and over and over again. But I didn't have to do it that way. Like, I actually got to watch this from an outsider's point of view. So it, it gave me time to sort of breathe and and deal with her death emotionally, even in a way that the doctor wasn't able to. And it it was just it was so clean and pristine and just the, the everything about it felt different enough from Doctor Who that I almost felt like I was sort of taking a little bit of a break from Doctor Who. And I don't think this episode works with, like as Stephen said, I don't think this episode works with a different team. I think you needed all of those pieces. I almost never noticed the music in Doctor Who. And yet, I thought it was amazing here. The first time the Doctor sees the ancient picture of Clara, we get Clara's theme played very lightly, but with this weird effect on it that almost makes it sound kind of warbly and backwards or underwater or something. It was just, there were, there were so many little touches like that. And, and I think we've had some really wonderful actors play the Doctor over the years, but I do think that, that Peter Capaldi is the only person who could pull this off in in the way that it that it actually worked it was it was just so fantastic and i mean you know and i even did get little glimpses of clara throughout the episode um i i didn't realize that that actually was clara standing there when you get the, the shots of her back uh i assumed it was a, a mannequin or a stand-in but no that was that was really jenna coleman so. i thought it was a stand-in i thought it was obviously a stand-in and then i found that out too and i was like I don't know what I was yeah, what, thinking. Was it actually her? Because I felt like yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, Rachel Talalay said this on Radio yeah. Free Scaro, so uh, I think it's true. Yeah, they had they had originally shot uh, some shots with a stand-in, and and Talalay just didn't like the look of the shot, so they got Jenna Coleman to do it. It's which is which is weird because it is her, but it doesn't look like her, which kind of that's reinforces right. She's using that. a different posture or something because it's not it's, how we're, we're so cynical about TV production that we think we think. <laughs> I mean, the way the episode is structured, you are meant to think that of course she's not actually in it because she left the show right Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. is the beauty of it is because you'd show her right you'd show her if it was her and so it must not be her so when then you see her you you have that oh she is here at at the right moment where before when she's just sort of facing the wall you don't have that kind of emotional attachment because it could be anybody you know Mm -hmm. it's a representation of clara and until you see her face and hear her voice it's not. That's the moment when Clara appears, and and, and, and even it's powerful. It's, 
it's it's sort of in the abstract. It's a representation of just companion. Yes, you know, he always right. has a companion. And and yeah, if if she had shown her face any earlier, it would have distracted from the rest of the episode. Even if she didn't say anything, even if the the scenes were exactly the same otherwise, just the assumption that it's not really her mm-hmm. is what sets that apart. If if you had seen her face, that would have spoiled the effect. I agree. I think it's a nice a nice thing. I I, yeah. I you know I look at the uh, I always thought that they were ridiculous, but the audience appreciation figures for uh, every episode that the BBC does <laughs> yeah. it, this this got kind of a a uh, a poor score. Uh, I mean, it's a good score, but it's the worst of the whole season. And I I think that's hilarious because everybody I've talked to who watches Doctor Who looks at this episode and says it's basically an instant classic. This is going to be an episode we're going to be talking about for years to come as a classic Doctor Who episode. Um, so I don't know what the people in the AI poll are thinking, but it is, I think it, I think it's a classic too. Right. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think the, the people who would have responded favorably were too busy crying at the time. <laughs> Where are the monsters? There are no monsters in this, just a, a the veiled <laughs> there is a monster. Uh, figure. Monster. There is a monster. It's true. Kind but of a monster. I, I had a, I felt like this actually solved the listen problem where we never understood who was writing on the chalkboard and listen. And then it's like, oh, it's in his brain. It's his mind. Yeah. It's like, ah. Oh, yeah. I mean, talk about the amazing things that are in this episode. We get inside the doctor's head, like actually inside the mm-hmm. doctor's head and his little yeah. head TARDIS that he's got where head he's thinking tardis. things yeah. out. And, and, you know, he likes to have an audience, as we mentioned earlier. And all, we get to see all of that, too, which is kind of amazing where uh, he's talking to essentially he needs a companion. Companion. He needs an audience. And if he doesn't have a companion, he will create a companion to talk to. But he has to have one. That's I love that he that he just flat out says that, you know, that he's he's trying to show off. He actually uses the phrase showing off. And it, and you're right. That That's just what I was going to say is the idea that we are getting to see inside the doctor's head is amazing and fascinating. I mean, back in the days, uh, in the wilderness years when there was no Doctor Who on and there were all these these novels, the Doctor Who New Adventures, one of the edicts uh, about those books was that the writers were never allowed to write what the Doctor was thinking. You only were able to see, you know, the Doctor from the outside. That mm. was the way it had to be. So yeah. I think the idea that we're seeing inside the Doctor's head and getting some of his thoughts is is even more revolutionary than it would be on, yeah. on any other show. Agreed. I wanted to point out the uh, the dolly zoom only because <laughs> the bit at the end where the doctor's sitting there and he says and, and uh, uh, this is the one what does he say he says uh, 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 now is the time I remember each or every time this is when I remember uh, and they do that pull out where they do the zoom thing I just read this long article I think from uh, Joe Rosenstiel had pointed uh, people to it about the the history of the dolly zoom where you get the the background gets further away or closer together because they're pulling. Mm-hmm. The yeah. zoom while they've moved the dolly backwards. And it's yeah, just you're, this zo- you're zooming in while you're pulling back. Yeah. Jaws is a yeah. good example <laughs> exactly. of it. Yeah. yeah. Goodfellas has a really slow one. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, hey, that's that great shot. And it was so perfect because that telescoping of time, it worked. Yeah. Uh, very effectively. The the thing that we, I mean, we don't have to go into the minutia of the episode, but the thing I kept going back to was that uh, they constructed a puzzle with these things that didn't make sense, but felt right that they didn't make sense. Usually those feel like flaws, but like, why is shovel in two places? When did he bury? I didn't get the octagon stone. I did not get the, the octagon stone was the thing buried in the thing that looked like a grave until I read the script. And I'm like, uh, oh, I figured that one out. I figured that oh. one out like second viewing. I was I, like, oh, that's what that is. I just wasn't being that smart. It's clear when you see it, but it's, uh, but uh, I think there are little bits and pieces of the fact that there's a uh, some kind of looping problem with his clothing and the fire. But 
that's okay because within the context, it makes sense. It almost he, he's it leaving bugs his clothes for the next uh, for the next doctor. <laughs> yeah, so we don't know who primed that loop, and he says all the rooms regenerate. But I think it's okay that the rules are slightly, you know, to, uh, the number of skulls doesn't exactly match as many yeah. as would be there, and so it, forth. It's too. the first and the first time loop. He just does the last half of the episode naked. Fortunately, we didn't see that episode, so it's yeah. okay. I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> or in a robe that he finds Dang. somewhere. Uh, Hell Bent is the last episode. So it, uh, in a classic, you know, Stephen Moffat has this thing about like two parters that don't feel like two parters, and this is that. This is this is uh, the Doctor returns to Gallifrey, um, and uh, it's all kind of a uh, scheme to save Clara by pulling her out of time. But he also we also deal with this is in many ways a sequel to the End of Time. Um, and a little bit the 50th anniversary episode as well. We get uh, a, a new Rassilon who is uh, who is uh, exiled as well as the rest of the High Council because there's that whole question of like those awful people who did these awful things during the time lo- time war and how do you deal with them? And the answer is that the Doctor basically sends them away. I like that. <laughs> it's not not bad. And he tries to save Clara by extracting her out of time. Um, they uh, the and and going down into the the depths of Gallifrey in order to kind of avoid capture. Um, and they ultimately end up at the end of at the restaurant at the end of the universe yes. with uh, a shelter and uh, and uh, in in a a delightful. Surprise, although maybe not surprising from Mr. Everybody Lives, Stephen Moffat. Um, Clara and Ashilder steal a TARDIS from Gallifrey themselves, essentially, or Clara steals it with the doctor, and then Clara and Ashilder run off in the uh, with its broken chameleon circuit to have their own adventures in presumably big Finnish audios to come. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and we get a happy ending, other than the fact that we get the reverse of what happened with Donna, which is, in this case, the doctor um, the, it tries to do a Donna kind of thing to Clara, and she says, no, not allowed. You're not going to do that. And they do a kind of, they have a pact on a 50-50 chance of having their memory wiped. And so the doctor doesn't remember the details of Clara at the end. And that's sort of the little tragedy that is wrapped around this episode. So, um, you know, the universe is never in peril, by the way, in this episode, other than I guess if the doctor blew it up in order to save Clara, but he would have blown it up. And it doesn't feel as operatic in some ways as the other episodes. I would They've say, done that the so many season. times that the universe has been blown up. I know, every, it's, all it's, of reality is yeah, falling it's, apart. It's I was peeved that they didn't show it initially. I was like, well, this seems like something missing. And then I was like, no, it's actually a form of restraint that they don't need to show us something. They've <laughs> yeah. shown us many, many times It's about times the characters. Before. It's that's yeah. It's about the characters. It, it took me a couple viewings to get over the fact that it wasn't heaven sent. Cause I was still basking in heaven yeah. sent when I saw this and I had to realize that, okay, this is completely different than that that episode i need to give it its full due um and i loved it for what it was uh i i you know i like how crazy weird it is i love how capaldi is basically silent for the first 15 20 yes. minutes of the episode it's a counterpoint to heaven sent it yeah. is until he finally sort of just shows up and you know he says get off my planet and everything and uh um you know, I think there, I think probably talked about most of this episode already while talking about other episodes earlier in the season. But I, I just love how, um, you know, everyone's given sort of an agency at this point. That in retrospect, everyone thought that the Donna Noble uh, finale was was tragic, but now it's just almost kind of aggravated because she was never given a choice, and here Clara has a choice. She takes control. She takes agency with her life. As does Maisie Williams, as does um, 
you know, basically the whole the whole thing's run run by superb female characters by the end. Even those that started out the story as male, um, <laughs> like the uh, the general who who, who regenerates oh. back into oh, a woman. I love that. You know, um, we, we we were talking about earlier about how Stephen Moffat likes to leave loose threads, and I think this is the biggest loose thread that he's leaving, basically paving the way for a, a future showrunner because I don't think he's going to be casting another Doctor during his time on the show to basically say everyone, it is cool if we have a female Doctor, and if we if the next person who follows me doesn't. I've essentially created a female doctor in Clara who will travel around the TARDIS on her own. So, you know, it, 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 it both kind of paves the way and cushions the blow if there is no female doctor uh, post Peter Capaldi. And I think it's, it's just a marvelous way to, to sort of wrap all that up. Yeah, I, I liked it in my head. I still, especially the first time I watched it, um, in my heart was was not quite over the, the Clara thing. And, and I do appreciate the fact that she does get to go off and have more adventures. And I love the fact that she has agency uh, and, and gets to make the choice about, uh, you know, not having the doctor just erase her memory without her being able to say no to that. Uh, we always joke on Verity, Lynn and, and Deb are always saying that they, they think maybe Stephen Moffat has, when he took over the show, he made a checklist of all of the things that Russell T. Davis did that he... I don't want to say he needed to fix them, but maybe things that he thought were cool, but was like, I would do it differently this way, because there are an awful lot of things that have, have, we've had some similarities where he has has switched it up and and changed it. And this is definitely a big one. A lot of people had real, real trouble with with Donna's, uh, you know, lack of consent at what was was done to her. And here we have a similar thing. And I, I love the way the episode is structured in that, we don't know at the beginning what happened. Like we, we think that it's Clara that has forgotten the doctor. Right. And I, I totally bought into that yep. all the way oh, until yeah, we get to the great. end. And then we find out, no, it's actually the doctor that has forgotten about her. And I love that he has, he still has his memories of the things that they did together and the places that they went. So, so it's not like he's missing a huge chunk of time. It's just all of the pieces that are so emotionally resonant and all of the pieces that are really, really related to her, that's what's gone. And I think that that's, that's just, wow. I got some real, some real talk about that. Cause I went through uh, cancer treatment in 1998 and I had chemotherapy for six months and, uh, I can't say that the writers at Stephen Moffat or anyone else talked to people with amnesia or had gone through chemo, but um, I have I couldn't tell you how much I identified with that. I didn't lose my memory, but after having chemo, I'm missing pages, and it's this feeling of I've described it almost exactly the way he did in that episode of you're walking down the street and you pull over and you know there was something there and there's a hole in the ground and you walk around it, you feel it with your tongue like an empty socket where a tooth was, and you can't for the life of you remember what that was. And I've met people from before chemo. And I remember a lot of people, remember a lot of things from my childhood, but it's pages torn out of the book. And there's people I know from college who are sometimes upset that I don't remember them. And I just don't have those memories or I remember the memory of them and not them themselves. So I think they got <laughs> that kind of resonance. I mean, it was very personal for me, but, but um, absolutely perfect. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's a soft tragedy. It's a tragedy. And yet he knows the, this is the lesson we learned early in the season and set up with me right? Which is she has the books. And so she knows that she's met Clara before, but she doesn't remember meeting Clara before. And that's what the doctor's memory is like now is he knows that these things happened, but he doesn't feel them. 
anymore. And it's a tragedy, but as tragedies go, you know, there are worse ones to have. And, and it is a great reveal when Clara goes back in the, in the back of the diner and, uh, it's at the original TARDIS console and me is waiting for her. And then they take off and leave the doctor behind, um, with the TARDIS. Uh, it's, uh, I got some questions about the timeline of like, he says that it, that he can't find it, but he obviously seems to have just arrived because they've got his TARDIS and it's a, I'm a little confused about some of the details, but I don't care. It's fine. It (laughs) is. It's, it's poetic and beautiful. And it allows me to have headcanon involving Amy and Rory and river meeting Matt Smith inside a diner that is actually Clara's TARDIS. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh Mm -hmm. my God. Which I'm sure is intentional. (laughs) It's beautiful. Right. And, and it's a, what a, what a great way to end. We get, we get kind of Gallifrey resolved in a way we get Clara and me as this alternate set of of doctors or doctor and companion we we get to see a tardis getting stolen from Gallifrey and having its chameleon circuit <laughs> broken we get the beautiful redress recreation of the original tardis with lots of details from William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton um just uh, there's just so much you know Stephen Moffat shows in this episode, I think, that there is uh, probably nobody on this earth who has spent more time thinking about Doctor Who than Stephen mm-hmm. Moffat. Uh, <laughs> and and he's, damn it, he's going to use all of it. We, we could also, we could now have uh, 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 Clara and a shoulder go off or me go off and uh, meet up with the doctor's daughter. Uh, with, they can uh, pick up all of the, the extra, doctor's mother, yeah, yeah. The doctor's mother uh, the, the, and uh, maybe uh, – uh, um, I can't never. I'm sorry, my brain is broken. Not Ramona, uh, Ramona, uh, Ramona, Ramona. My or Ramona. Stupid brain, little little stupid, known companion, stupid. Ramona. Uh, but I feel like we have all these, and then a River Song, of course. So we have all these uh, time ladies uh, and Missy. They could all have a very interesting uh, trip together. Tardis is big enough. Yep, it's a lot of room in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just again, I, I, I liked the shape of this where it was. On one level, huge because it's the end of the universe and Gallifrey and all of that. And yet another on another level, I really appreciated how this this series ended with a quieter, uh, in a way, and and more limited in scope and more about personal costs and people and and the Doctor's loss of Clara and trying to get her back. And I like that. I like that it was not not every not every season needs to end with an existential threat to the universe. For God's sake. Yeah, it was it was intimate. It, there weren't a bunch of explosions and flying Daleks and stuff. It was intimate. They're sitting in armchairs at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that. One of my favorite lines is, you know, as, as he arrives, you know, so we're sitting inside a, an energy bubble. Me, how you uh, how you sustaining it? And she says brilliantly. That was a Douglas Adams line, practically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I like how it started as a western. That, that we open yeah. the episode and he draws a line and he and looks like Doc Holliday or something. He's, he starts – he put, takes off his nicer coat and he puts on one that's more severe. There's a there's a, there's a sheriff's here. Come, the sheriff's coming. Yeah. There's an outlaw. You know, that kind of – and then the, the scene with him eating the soup and all those sort of townspeople in the drylands just <laughs> staring at him. Yeah. I didn't know where it came from. It was fantastic. It was. I, 
I like how um, you know they made the return of Gallifrey seem like a big thing, but then it didn't become a big thing. And I think had you had they sort of you know because they planted the seeds of finding Gallifrey again at the end of the day of the Doctor, and it could have been like oh it's this huge epic where they're going to go back to the time war and everything. But no, the only reason that the Doctor wanted to find Gallifrey again was basically so he could save Clara. Yeah, uh, and that was it. And then you sort of left him on, to their own devices again, which I, I quite like. So we found it and then put it away again. So we. Don't don't necessarily need to see it again uh, but it's it's there to be dealt with but it's not and we didn't get into time lord politics and all the boring yep. stuff right that is not mm-hmm. interesting about gallifrey it's sort of like it's gallifrey is interesting because of what it means about the doctor and you know what the in this case how they they save clara and steal a tardis but it's not the details of time lord society beyond that i like that the, the people we saw in gallifrey were the the, the poor people who live in the drylands yeah the which is where he grew up out in that barn you know that's i love that 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 that's what we see and also he he has to drop his weapon and he he has a spoon yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great that's the <laughs> best possible robot of sherwood callback you'll ever get and i just like it's the place where people i mean i, I love the come up into rassilon it, that was just great and just the thing where there's nobody yeah. important out here there are no witnesses it's like you know it just oh and then the ship showing up and it just all felt legitimate yeah. i think it was interesting too to recontextualize him as you know the former war doctor that you could have the scene where they're like he's a war, he's a war hero he it's loyalty he saved to us. loyalty to the war doctor is absolutely yeah. happening here and he saved the plan you know he saved them all he did and rassilon's cowering at the end of time yeah it's cool um, surprising 50th anniversary special resonances that yeah. I, I, yeah, I did not expect to get this season. All right. Uh, before we, before we wrap it up, we should talk at least, at least a little bit. There was a whole TV podcast about it too. Uh, the husbands of river song. Um, Erica, you don't like river song. Mm. I, I found what? that I, I liked river song better the longer, you know, the, the, the longer we went on. I didn't like her at the beginning. I liked her later. Um, but then we got here. Um, uh, I, I, I think river's, it's cool that there is a river character. Um, she just she's not she's not for me, and I never I never like the the sillier Doctor Who episodes almost ever. Um, so so the Christmas ones generally aren't up my alley either. Mm. So I I in theory kind of enjoyed this. Like it was it was all right to watch. I I I always think that Stephen Moffat writes his. Um, his couples as if they are in a 1940s screwball comedy. But it, which I love, I love the, you know, the less screwy of the screwball comedies from, from back in those days. And yet I don't really love it in Dr. Who. So while I thought that this was way better chemistry between river and the doctor than I ever got from, from Matt Smith or David Tennant, it just, it, it was all right. I don't know. I loved, I loved it. I, I I loved it. It 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 felt exactly <laughs> the right level of silly and fun, and I thought it like a good use of River and a great interplay. I've, I I don't you know Alex Kingston and Peter Capaldi. The 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 age difference between Alex Kingston and Matt Smith was very interesting, but uh, Alex Kingston and Peter Capaldi. I don't know if it's that they're closer in age. Um, I don't know if it's just Peter Capaldi and Alex Kingston have a connection, but I just loved them together. And I love that she didn't, that he had the upper hand on her because so much River Song story is that she has the upper hand on him. Um, and, uh, and I love that, uh, uh, that moment where she realizes that it is him yeah, and that, that he is does, amazing. and he cares about <sighs> her, right? It's not just that that's him, but it's, it's that 
that he wouldn't be standing here next to me because he doesn't care. A sunset isn't going to love you back. And then she's like, he, he wouldn't be, oh, right. Because it's, so it's that simultaneous, like, this is him. It's been him all along. And he does care. Uh, it's, that that was a, he says, a beautiful moment. Hello, sweet. Hello, sweet. Perfectly. Yeah. He has that. He has the unhinged smile that I think is the. I would say this is the through line from the the Doctor Who across all the Doctors. It, 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 they don't all do this, but I think it's a through line. Is that the Doctor can look completely unhinged? And Tom Baker had it in spades, <laughs> and you could see P- Christopher Eccleston. There are times that he would just he'd be saying something, and his face would light up. You go like, oh my, that person is off the. Like, like practically off the rocker. And I think Peter Capaldi, he has a really devilish smile that came out a few times in this episode that just hit that right on the head. I liked it. Um, but I, I mean, it, after the heaviness of, of series nine, they kind of needed and they knew they needed sort of a lighter screwball kind of thing. It was going to go out at five fifteen as opposed to eight or eight thirty as most of series yeah. nine went out, but knowing all that. And then honestly, um, for the first time ever in my life, I think star Wars and doctor who actually intersected and competed for my <laughs> affections. Uh, and so I was, I was so in star Wars, the force awakens mode. Um, having seen it, I think twice, maybe even three times before Christmas. I can't remember now. Um, and so I was kind of like, I also watch Doctor Who now, and so I kind of, I kind of went. In, I feel like I didn't give it its 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 full attention uh, the first time I saw. It. So I think I watched three or four times and, and liked it more each time. But I, you know, Star Wars, that's all. Star Star Wars owned Christmas this year for me. <laughs> I think it's. I think timing really was against it in in two ways because I, having seen Star Wars with Steven every time and being so wrapped up in it, I felt that same way about it. But also, I think the fact that the series ended so close to Christmas, yeah didn't give us that same amount of breathing room that we're used to having. I agree. So I was still not only just in Star Wars mode, but I was still kind of in that emotional place that Series 9 had left me. And I didn't have enough time to chew it over and let it all digest quite right like I like I normally do. So, yeah. Yeah, see, I, I spent an hour with you Christmas night talking about how I utterly loved it. Um, so I don't, I don't have to go on and on. You know, go listen to the TV episode. I, I will say... As much as I enjoyed Star Wars, and I really did enjoy Star Wars, I've only seen that once. I've already seen this about three times, just because so much fun. <laughs> it's it's fun and pointed at the end, though. I think a lot of people that I've yeah. uh, seen talk about it the last 15, 20 minutes when they're in the restaurant and everything and having those conversations, I think that's when it really gets good. Oh, yeah. that That's the capper for it. Yeah, I, yeah, I like I, – I, I mean – we we've anybody who's been talking about Doctor Who for the last few years knows that the the Christmas special has a specific job to do. It needs to be broad. People are going to watch that episode in in Britain that are not going to watch Doctor Who otherwise, but they're going to watch that one. So you want it to be a romp. You want it to be fun. You want it to have action. You want it not to be too heavy. And I think that uh, I think it does all of those things delightfully well. And then I think they're payoffs for people who are who have been watching the show all along and uh, and then it ends it, there's wackiness and then it ends with something that's actually kind of touching and and beautiful and and uh and so yeah it's all it's all good the only problem i have with it is that by decisively saying that she hasn't seen um peter capaldi's doctor before it makes it very difficult for us to calculate out how to get more uh things even if it's audio stories later uh, with uh, with Alex Kingston and Peter Capaldi, who are so great together, but hey, that's fine. They got the they got the, the whatever it is. They have twenty four years. Twenty four years. Night. 
of night. To have adventures. Well, also, yeah. he said, doesn't believe, don't believe all myths, basically. So there's stories about us. And so yeah. uh, she yeah. may be misstating precisely the timeline in, uh, it's true. in the forest episode. Uh, I also realize all the Christmas episodes, so we have giant crashing spaceships uh, or flying sharks. I guess there are other options, too. But uh, – the, you know. Well, the flying shark episode also had a crashing spaceship. Oh my yes, gosh, it, do, it did! <laughs> it just, they just never crashed because they managed oh, to save you. it. There was a murderous Christmas tree episode, but that had a giant spaceship that you're got right. it didn't shot cry. out of the sky. It, you're right. Oh my god, this yeah. is better than I thought. This is better than raccoons. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Well, in uh, uh, Doctor the Widow, the wardrobe, it wasn't a crashing spaceship; it was a crashing plane. Yeah. There you oh go. my goodness. Totally different. So uh, oh, we're, wow. we're we're basically at the end. So I want to I want to ask the difficult question now, which is where do you place this season in terms of success or failure, and compared to previous seasons? I'm kind of curious for a final kind of verdict on that front. Stephen, what do you where, where, where do you rank series nine? I think um, it's undoubtedly the best series since it came back for me. It might. Wow. It might even be the best season of Doctor Who ever, because um, this is like twelve episodes. What do you think about it? Is twenty six episodes worth of uh, in the old? Actually, yeah, twenty six worth in the olden days. I'm not too sure that uh, the Doctor Who has ever had a solid front to back um, season in its history uh, since maybe last year, which I thought was equally as good. So I, th- yeah, I think we're in a golden age, and I've watched the show for over thirty years. Saying that, so yeah. Wow. High Eric, praise. Erica, what's your uh, Series 9 overall verdict? Yeah, I'm I'm right there with Steven. I mean, it, it, despite the emotional issues I have with with the end of Clara, I can still I can still remove myself from the equation and and just look at it a little bit more objectively. And I do think that it is for me easily easily the best since, that we've had since this, the since it came back. I, I loved Series Eight, but um, I think for me it's 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 a much easier call to say that I like this one better. I still think overall Season 16 might. Be my favorite because I just love the key to time yeah. to bits and pieces. Mm. <laughs> uh, but if we're going like strictly quality, uh, I still have to say that this one is, is better because as much as I love series sixteen, season sixteen, it's um it's a little janky in places. It's up and down, yeah. Mm-hmm. David, yeah. verdict? Uh, I'm with them. Uh, I I think the Capaldi run in, in general has been more consistent than anything in the new series. Again, front to back. Yeah. Um, and and this season, I mean, you know, I had quibbles with things here and there, uh, but just for overall entertainment value and overall uh, not wanting to nitpick them to death, uh, and and then just enjoying so many of the little tiny bits of episodes, even the ones that weren't perfect, uh, it's just it's been really really good this year, Glenn. I'm going to be boring and generally agree. I think I watched about <laughs> 50 or 60 percent of the uh, of the original Who series, and then I've watched everything that's come out uh, since the Eccleston reboot. And uh, I love some episodes better. I love some parts of series and arcs better. But I thought this was fantastic. And, you know, I had my doubts during the season because I thought it was good. It was very solid. I thought it was, it was a very consistent season and watchable. And then the last three episodes destroyed me because, I, I mean, I've never watched any episode as much as haven't been or uh, haven't sent yet, I don't think. I mean, five times and I'll probably watch it many more. So uh, I feel like they did an excellent job um, overall. And uh, I, I wonder, the only thing I would say is I'm curious how people who are not Doctor Who fans coming into the season saw it. Uh, there's no good way to know that, but uh, I thought for um, somebody like uh, you know all of us who have 
back history with it. Um, I certainly appreciated it uh, greatly for a lot of the reasons I think Stephen was talking about um, on his page. Well, and and things that were that that there were kind of questionable early on, or that you went, I don't know where this is going, or I don't know if they're going to pick this up. When they did close the circuit at the end, it all tied together beautifully, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't like the story arcs where it's like building to some giant big climactic, you know universe-wide conflagration and saving the universe. And I've, I've said this on other shows about other things. I'm tired of everything's exploding and we have to save the universe. This really did it. It it took this intimate story by the end, and it was about the characters that we were worried about. It had nothing to do with the whole universe or the whole planet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Jason, where do you place it? Oh, thanks for asking. I was just going to say <laughs> Oh, anyway. so Canadian. I love it. But uh, <laughs> I... I uh, Okay, I'm going to be a little bit of a dissenter. I I think that Series 8 was uh, last year was better overall in terms of consistency and then had a disappointing ending. Whereas I think this season was, although fairly consistent and good, I think I felt not as delighted by it as I did last season, but it had such a great ending. I I really loved the last two episodes and really the last three episodes. Um, I felt like the, just as a as a season, it, it it wrapped up in a more um, appealing way. So, but it, you know, if I had to score, I I would rate Peter Capaldi's first year higher than this slightly, but I think it's close. And then the only other modern uh, series that I would throw in there is this is the first David Tennant series, series two that I have a I have a great fondness for. Um, it's hard. We we're at the point with modern. Doctor Who where it's almost hard to call back that far because the show has changed and the way it looks old Russell T. Davis era Doctor Who is starting to feel like old Doctor Who in a way that it wasn't at the time but it's very different now than it was then so it's kind of hard to compare them but that has some of my favorite season uh, series two of, of the new Doctor Who has some of my very favorite episodes in it so no, um, you're, you're also right. fear her, is. her is there but which is not that good and the Idiot's Lantern which is not that good but there's a and the Simon <laughs> two partner isn't that good <laughs> and yet the heights I, I think I think that's the, the heights thing with are high Capaldi Capaldi with with the exception of heaven sent i would say the capaldi era is interesting because i feel like it's way more consistent than doctor who has been in a long time but the heights don't for whatever reason don't feel quite as high with the exception of heaven sent is that maybe because we don't have the lows to compare them to it's possible Mm -hmm. it it is possible they've been taking their medication this season and the episodes it's all evened out a little bit you know yeah yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about. It. I think it's been a good season. I think it's been very consistent. Like I said, I think consistency in the Capaldi era, uh, even even the episodes that are kind of clunkers, I can usually find something that I like about them, like Sleep No More, which I think is very stylish, even though I think it makes no sense, or Kill the Moon last year, which I really didn't like, and yet I think about it and I think it's very interesting, and I just think it failed. But I think it's interesting in how it failed. So that's not a bad thing to to be at that level of consistency. So yeah. You know, that's my that's my feeling about it. But it's good. I you know I uh, see stories. We this we're, we're back to where we started with this episode, which is talking about when does Doctor Who come back again? And so we don't know. Is it, it are we not going to see Doctor Who for a year, or is there going to be a short run of episodes in the fall, fo- followed by more episodes in the spring? We just don't know. And then we also don't know. Of course, we're entering the third full series of a Doctor in Peter Capaldi, and that's frightening because generally that's the last series for a Doctor is the yeah. third in the modern series. That's been the kind of the rule 
rule. David Tennant and Matt Smith both did three full seasons. Uh, David Tennant also did some specials. So, because um, I, I, I have to say, and this always happens, but I got to say it, I don't want him to go. I want him, yep. I want Peter Capaldi to stick around for a little while because I feel like mm-hmm. he has so much to offer the series. And I would much rather, I know it makes sense to change the showrunner and have Stephen Moffat finally kind of hang it up and change the doctor at the same time. That's what happened with, with Russell T. Davis. At the same time, I kind of don't want to see it happen. I kind of want to, uh, I'm going to go back into classic Doctor Who. I kind of want that last Tom Baker season with Peter Capaldi where the show changes, but the doctor at least is kind of the same for a year because I want more Peter Capaldi three years is not enough for me I hope I hope we don't have I hope we're not two thirds through his era because I'm not ready to say goodbye to Peter Capaldi he is great yeah, here, same here. here. I will willingly take uh, a year off from Doctor Who, as it appears we're doing now, in order to extend Peter Capaldi's reign I agree, as yes. a Doctor. You know, even if they cancel the show for five years and Peter Capaldi is still technically the current Doctor, even though he regenerates at the end of that last episode, as long as we can have him as the current Doctor, even when he's not even on air, I can take that as a win. I feel like at this point, the the Christmas special, having been on every year since 2005, that even if they decide not to do Doctor Who for a while, they're still going to do an episode every year at Christmas. Yeah. How could they not at this point? Mm-hmm. How could they not? Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I agree with you. Um, keep, let's keep Peter Cabaldi. He's a treasure. He's he he not only is he a fan, and we know that he's a fan, but he is you. You could not. I think. Perhaps because he is a fan, to get an actor of his caliber, yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. uh, this chance is not going to come around again. This is a very special moment. Let's just keep this guy, keep mm-hmm. him. I know. I, I remember hearing. I mean, the the Matt Smith era was you know hit and miss. I think in regards to scripting, and I think it's mostly because they didn't really have an executive producer like uh to sort of keep the reins on things and they got a guy called brian minchin who's been in that position for the past two years and it's really sort of like firmed everything up i remember hearing scuttlebutt in the in you know leading into peter capaldi that this season is gonna be much better because you know no offense to matt smith but he's just a young actor we can't treat peter capaldi the same way that we treated matt smith uh, and so I, I had an inkling early on that I think they were really like, oh my god, we got Peter Capaldi, we have to impress him. Uh, and so I think the, the man quality has an Oscar. Have, he yeah. has an Oscar. Everybody for like brushes the crumbs off their shirts and sucks in their guts and is <laughs> exactly, like, yes, sir. Exactly, you know. Yeah, he's he's it's, it's not even that it's an Oscar for acting; it's for directing. I he know. knows what Whoa. he's doing. He knows what he's yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah. you know. Well, uh, onward somewhere. It is really. I was. Th- I was thinking about also how how disconcerting it is that the uh, that the Christmas special doesn't end with the Doctor will return in the oh, title no. of this episode. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not even named. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I hope we can reconvene before too long to talk about the next <laughs> season of Doctor Who. But who knows when that will be? Um, I would like to thank my guests for talking about this season, though. It's good that we got to talk about it now that it has come and gone, and now we're in the wilderness, the mini wilderness of uh, between seasons of Doctor Who, with not even knowing when it will be coming back. David Lohr, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm I'm just gonna like flip and come back to the restaurant in a few years. Sure. So. Sure. It'll still be nighttime. Cool. We'll 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 have dinner. Nights are long on this planet. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Fleischman, thank you for being here. You you supply the the best of all the headcanon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I apparently 
uh, think about this maybe a little too much. But, you know, as I look at the sky tonight, by the position of the stars, I think we've been on this podcast for over two billion years. It's quite possible. <laughs> and I remember it all. Erica Ensign, thank you. Of course, people can listen to you talk about uh, Doctor Who uh, every week, more or less, on Verity. Yes, indeed. Yeah. If 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 you're a Doctor Who fan out there and, and jonesing for more Doctor Who stuff, then then come and rewatch Series 1 and Season 1 with us Ooh, this year. Let's nice. that. And and lazy Doctor Who, no less. And well, yeah, I was <laughs> going to say now, now, and Erica and Stephen together host Lazy Doctor Who on the Incomparable Network, where uh, you uh, totally took control and owned New Year's Eve. <laughs> That's all us. That lazy, was yeah. my shiny that, that, metal. That was that was beautiful. That was a beautiful thing. Uh, they're watching. Uh, if you haven't listened to Lazy Doctor Who, Erica and Stephen are watching every episode of the original classic Doctor Who from the very beginning. And uh, and podcasting about it whenever because it's casual like that. That's why it's called Lazy Doctor Who. It's right yep. in the name, people. Don't complain. It's in the name. Stephen Shapansky, you are uh, one of the hosts of Radio Free Scaro. Everybody's uh, it's like the most famous Doctor Who podcast. I keep I, I keep thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, what I have to say to you is, may the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I, I, all. All this talk about Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek, Star Wars. Live <laughs> oh, long and prosper. Then <laughs> Star Wars and, and Series Nine <laughs> has whetted my appet- has whetted my appetite, and it saddens me that uh, I have to wait the entire year until the next. Star Wars movie and Doctor Who Christmas special, which will air within a week of each other in late December. Life in 2016 is not. We'll fair. get a new. So we'll probably we get all. a new Star Wars movie before we get a new episode of Doctor Who. Has to <laughs> we will. Maybe we'll get a, a yeah. mashup and we'll get a new Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> I would yeah. love that. I will not go to the second level with you, Glenn. <laughs> Doctor Who Life Day special. Yeah. I would watch that in a heartbeat. Uh, and, that's right. And depending, we may even get the new Star Trek series before a. Oh my God. Now that I think about it. Maybe they'll all meet somewhere. Oh, my. Well, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Just a reminder, too, you can listen to Verity and and listen to Erica and a, an amazing cast of people talking about Doctor Who. Radio Free Scaro, uh, Stephen and his two pals on that one is a great one. Lazy Doctor Who, of course. And the TV podcast has all of our episode-by-episode episode, uh, things where it's me and various guests, including all of, you know, all of these people, except for Stephen, who he, he's always on Radio Free Scaro. So he exactly. Hasn't on that one I, I, I talk enough about Doctor Who Exactly. There, there's a lot of Doctor <laughs> Who is what we're saying if there, you want to listen to more podcasts about Doctor Who. But that's the end of this one so thanks to everyone out there for listening to this episode of the incomparable we'll we'll see you next time 